Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey guys, welcome back. Today we are going to be talking all about sensory processing and sensory processing disorder. So if your child has sensory processing challenges, I can't stress enough just how important it is to begin to understand what exactly is going on in the brain and the body. Because when you do, you're going to really start to get this appreciation and an insight into their world. And you'll also be empowered to support them with their differences. So I really wanted to get someone on the show today who can talk to us from a personal lived experience perspective, but also from a professional point of view. So we can really understand what is going on. And I couldn't go past inviting the incredible Alison Davies. So Alison is autistic and has sensory processing disorder. She is a neurologic music therapist. Ellie has 15 years experience working as both a therapist and educator in childhood intervention and specializes in anxiety and meltdown management. Ellie tours her one-day workshop Brains Equal Behaviors nationally and also manages the Brains Equals Behaviors e-course. I am currently doing this course at the moment, guys, and the content is just amazing. It's really informative and it's practical and I am learning heaps of new stuff, so it's definitely worth checking out. So welcome, Ali. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, So good to have you finally on the show and I couldn't think of a more appropriate topic than sensory processing to have a good old chat to you about um, because I know this is something that you're really passionate about. Uh, yeah, I could I could talk about this all day long, so rein me in. <laughs> all righty. Well, at the start of the podcast, we always like to hit the rewind button, so get a bit of background information about you, who you are, what life was growing up, um, what, what it was like, and sort of where you are today, what's happening in your world. Right. Um, in terms of sensory processing difficulties as a child you know of the 80s we were unaware of any of it um and everything that I experienced as a child that was difficult I just assumed was quite normal um so I guess at the time when I was young there was no management there was no awareness there was no support um I As an adult, I received my autism um, diagnosis in 2016 and I can look back now at my childhood and see so many, I don't know if you want to call them red flags, I I sort of call them just hints, Um, and I can see myself as a child experiencing things that were really difficult that no one had any idea about. And so even though as a child, it didn't really, I don't remember having any, having, I don't remember it having any direct impact me on me as a child, but now as an adult, I can look back and think of myself as a child and I feel really sad. And in a lot of ways, I feel like I've experienced trauma that is playing out in my own experience as a mother um, because I'm autistic with sensory processing disorder and I grew up unaware of any of it. Does that make sense? Mm. Can you tell us what some of those sensory processing challenges were that you look back now that you identify as those red flags? Yeah. Well, the biggest one was definitely food and food textures. Um, I was, you know, well, what, what everyone just called a picky eater. Um, and I didn't eat anything that had bits in it. Uh, as a child, I used to call them yippies and, uh, yippies was one of my first words. I think, um, everything had yippies in it. So if there was any pulp, any texture, any, anything, um, even ice cream with chocolate chips in it, if there was anything in anything, it was yippies. And, um, I couldn't, I could just couldn't do it. Um, 
food that was touching, although I didn't know it at the time. I just didn't think I wanted to eat anything. But now I have uh, memories, I think maybe repressed memories that pop up now when I serve my own children food. Um, And I have these real memories of me as a child looking at my food and just knowing that I couldn't eat it. And I remember the feeling of disgust at um, things that were touching each other that were different, um, maybe even the colour combinations, um, just knowing that I couldn't do it. And now knowing that it's not about pickiness and I was literally in survival mode when I was experiencing that. I can I can see that I would have felt that it was dangerous to eat it. Um, so food was my biggest one and I, oh man, I get emotional even just thinking about it. Um, you know, in the eighties, um, parenting was different to the way it is here. And I have, I have amazing, awesome parents. Um, but you know, I was sort of forced to eat food, (laughs) you know, you will sit at this table until you eat it. Um, and I remember the feeling of having food in my mouth and just having it in there for, I don't know, 10 minutes or it felt like hours and just chewing it and moving it and trying to swallow, but just this intrinsic feeling of, I just can't possibly, it's like, it's dangerous. You can't swallow that. It's like my brain was telling me, you can not swallow this thing. Your life is in danger. Um, and you know, it was just seen as a behavioral problem or a, or a fussy eating problem. Mm. Um, yeah. And that one, that one has played out as well in my life as a parent because it affects how I feed my children. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that was the biggest one, but, but clothes, um, I have, very strong memories of sitting in school and I could feel my school uniform touching my legs, especially my knees. And I would just, it was like everything when I was growing up, I was very much, I'd never had meltdowns. I was very much a poker face on the outside, but on the inside I was exploding with rage. And um, I used to think to myself, even as a kid, this can't be normal there's got to be something wrong with me. This is surely not normal, but this isn't the sort of thing a child says out loud. So I just went along with life, just assuming that, you know, I don't know, it was just unspoken. But I remember sitting in the science lab when I was in grade eight and having the most intense rage pulsing through my body so much that I couldn't work out if people from the the classroom I couldn't work out how people couldn't see it. I was just sitting there just normal, like there was nothing visible different about me, but it was so intense that I could not believe that other people couldn't see this anger pouring out of me. It was, um, and that was a common feeling, but this one was, this, this memory was just a really specific one. But clothes, um, clothes and food were the biggest things that caused problems for me as a child. Mm. And they're two really common issues that will run in with a lot of kids who have sensory processing challenges. And it sounds like you were overreactive to sensory information. And we'll dive into that a bit. But first, I want to just cover, you know, for people who don't know much about sensory processing and sensory processing disorder, what exactly is it? What are we talking about here? Okay. Um, well, I myself don't have the perfect, simple definition. <laughs> um, but sensory processing disorder, okay, firstly, there isn't at this point an actual clinical diagnosis for sensory processing disorder. It's very well accepted. No one denies it. Uh, we know it's completely prevalent, um, I think, even more so than we could imagine and even more so than any other sort of neurodivergent condition that we identify um, in people these days now that we understand about neurology. Um, So I I do think that one day it will be recognised clinically. Um, But sensory processing disorder, to my mind, is defined by a brain that 
struggles to integrate sensory information from the environment. Also, someone with sensory processing disorder can have different thresholds for certain senses. So, for example, I have a low threshold for noise. That means my brain can integrate a certain level of noise in the day and then it gets to its threshold, which is pretty low and happens pretty early in the morning most days, and then it just taps out. It won't integrate any more auditory, any more noise. It's done. And so from then on, you're in survival mode because your brain just isn't doing its job. Uh, And some people have very high thresholds, so they need heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps and heaps of sensory information, which I think we said we're going to touch on after. Um, so both of those can be problematic. So I think of a brain with sensory processing disorder as one that isn't great at integrating sensory information and also has, um, thresholds that can cause issues. Would you agree with that? You're the OT. I'd love to know your definition. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I think it's, it is about understanding that we live in this sensory rich world and we're constantly being bombarded with sensory information all the time. And our brain has to really prioritize what information it's going to pay attention to and what information isn't important and we can block out. And a person who has sensory processing challenges will find it difficult to work out, you know, which, which information is important and which information we need to block out. Um, and the kids who find it difficult are going to be the kids who are living in this, you know, if they're having that overload of information, they're going to be living in this high state of stress and anxiety all the time. And they're just waiting for that next thing just to tip them over the edge until it explodes and it's too much and they can't cope and they shut down or they have a meltdown. And that's when we see those behaviors, um, and, yeah, it's so much more than the behaviours. The behaviour oh. is just that tip of the iceberg. And this is where all your yeah. amazing knowledge and everything that you're doing in your Brains Equals Behaviours course is just so fascinating to me because um, really we've got to dig past the behaviour and find out what exactly is going on, what's triggering the yeah. behaviour. And, and, you know, like I said before, I was a poker face. I didn't have any behaviours that anyone would have picked up on. Um, People said that I was shy, but now we know that I was actually in a state of shutdown um, and I didn't speak a lot. Uh, Potentially I was nonverbal. I've definitely experienced bouts of of being nonverbal as an adult. Um, So potentially that was what was going on as a child, but I was just called shy. But I, I really don't remember talking a whole lot apart from my one best friend and my family until I was probably about 15. Um, and I certainly wasn't, I didn't have any behaviours that seemed, you know, I was definitely the easiest child in my family, I do believe. Um, and like I said, I was a poker face. I just held it all inside and I just did everything I needed to do to look exactly like everyone else, to play my part perfectly. Um, and it was just raging away inside me. So when you only focus on the behaviours, you can miss so much. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Let's dive into the different types of sensory modulation challenges. So that's the kids who over-respond to sensory information, the kids who under-respond to in- sensory information, and the kids who are seeking sensory information. So let's start with the over-responders. What are some things in the environment that can trigger overload for you and what you sort of notice with kids that you work with? Yeah. Uh, Look, I noticed that this is the main, this is the one that the majority of children I've worked with and the majority of children whose parents are coming to me and doing my courses and signing up for my webinars, they are experiencing overload. Now, I'd also like to say that you don't need to be neurodivergent or even have sensory processing issues at all to be experiencing overload because we're living in a modern, hectic, rushed, sensory-dense lifestyle that has never, ever been like this throughout the whole of human history since, um, you know, uh, the industrial age when all of a sudden we've got toys that make noises and we've got power and we've got batteries and we've got 
things being shipped around the world, global consumerism, and we have abundance. Um, that, that I guess, since the industry, let's go, let's go back a, a few generations, maybe let's say the last hundred years, uh, we've been experiencing this growth in sensory information and the whole of human history before that has never had to deal with it. So our poor brains haven't really evolved to the point where they can handle all of this stuff that we've got in our lives. So I just really feel like sensory overload is an enormous issue for for all, for most people, I would say. Um, and I... Oh, sorry, I've lost my track. What was the next part of the question? Yeah, so what are some things in the environment that trigger your sensory yep. overload and other kids that you work with? All right. So also everybody has their own sensory profile. So everybody's sensory needs are going to be different. Mine personally, I have a low threshold for auditory information. That is my hardest one to manage because honestly, noise is one of the only things that you can't completely control i can close my eyes if i don't want to see stuff um and that works um i can block my ears i can wear my noise cancelling headphones but it never completely creates silence and you can't parent silent children <laughs> and you can't detach when you're parenting um and so i have found that noise is absolutely the one that that sends me into a state of overload and it happens very quickly even beautiful noises like when I wake up in the morning and the birds are singing I live in the bush and just there's a window right there and there's beautiful birds out there and every sometimes depending on how overloaded I am every single beautiful little tweet it's like it's hitting me in the face <laughs> and then I hear um, my husband breathe <laughs> or something you know every little noise has a very, very physical almost effect. Um, and it feels like all these little noises are just slapping me all over the body and all over my face and I want to scream at them to get away. Um, but visual... Can I ask, Ali, yeah. what happens when you reach a thres threshold for that auditory information? What happens to you physically, emotionally? What goes on in the body? So I get really, really, really angry inside, like rage. I don't get angry outwardly, I f but it's the only way I can explain it is like hot rage, like burning rage, like I want to smash that window where the bird is um, and I just want to punch my husband in the face. <laughs> um, and, you know, I obviously would never, ever do anything like that, but the impulse to just stop that noise because I'm in survival mode when I'm overloaded or overwhelmed brain won't cope with any more noise. So I, it puts me into survival mode. So I'm literally fending for my life and every single thing that makes a noise is something that is, feels like it is threatening my ability to function or it feels like it's threatening my ability to stay alive. Like I often think I can't, I really feel when I'm in that state that I just genuinely can't live like I'm going to implode and I can't survive another moment. And so my impulse to just get rid of whatever is making a noise is so strong and it just makes parenting so incredibly difficult, it fills you with guilt and shame and all of that because they're not the sorts of thoughts you want to be having while you're parenting. Um, but it's, it's very strong. I, I'm so pleased you asked me that because I can't emphasise enough how intense that emotion is and with me it doesn't come out physically because I hold it all in and I hold it all in but then eventually I'll probably have a meltdown um but it shows how why children are having such aggressive behaviors because they don't have that ability to hold it in the way uh, an almost 40 year old um would so it, it really the 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 intensity of that emotion and understanding that it's really huge really puts into perspective why children are um, expressing that rage, not just bottling it up like an adult. Mm. So parents will be listening to this and wanting to know then what can they do for their child if their child is either expressing 
this intensity um, behaviourally, so it's coming out in anger or aggressiveness or if they are just holding it in until they have some sort of meltdown or shutdown. What can they do to help their child? And this isn't just for kids who um, have auditory challenges, but any sort of sensory processing challenges that they're over-responding to. Yeah, yeah, because I, I experience that with no matter what it is. I'm visual, I have issues with too much movement around me um, and tactile, you know, if I'm wearing clothes, which I do because I'm a person in the world, so I have to wear clothes. But, um, you know, if I'm wearing something that doesn't feel right and I can feel it, I have the exact same experience. So you're right, it doesn't matter which sensory system you're responding to. Um, I would say my biggest, the biggest thing that I've experienced in my own life and, and through, through, through communication with all the other adults who are experiencing this as well, who can really put it into words, is that the actual aggressive behaviour um, is, is always the byproduct of the real issue. So when you focus, so I would advise try as much as you can uh, not to take it personally and also know that the behaviour is, is the byproduct. It's not the problem. So try as hard as you can not to fixate or focus on trying to fix the behaviour. Um, the problem is the sensory overload in this case. So I would say understand, first learn about your child's sensory profile. So you would go to an occupational therapist and have a sensory profile assessment and observe your child so you really understand them and, and, and talk to them depending on how old they are. So you really understand their particular sensory needs and then adapt your lifestyle in a way that caters for those needs. Try and avoid the overload rather than react and respond to the overload once it's already happened. Mm, absolutely. And it is about respecting their reality because for these kids and for you, it is your reality. Even though we can't see it or feel it the way you are feeling it, that is actually happening for you. So if we dismiss it, yeah. um, we're not taking a step in the right direction. Yeah. And I am super lucky that my husband is the best. Um, and he's never once, I've never once felt, um, you know, he's, I've never felt not validated by him. And it's hard for the other person though, because I look completely normal. I don't look like I'm bursting with rage. Um, <laughs> but then all of a sudden I might start screaming for everyone to get away from me. And it can be really confusing for the other people and for the rest of the family. So, yeah, understanding that they're not doing this. Nobody chooses to kick and scream and, and be angry. No one chooses those behaviours because they want to do them. Um, so, you know, we already feel really vulnerable and guilty and scared and all of those things. So, yeah, really recognising that this is real for them um, is enormous so other than um reducing the stimulus or removing a child from the noise or from the visual stimulus or whatever it is that is causing them to feel that way are there any tools that you use for self-regulation um you know i know music is a big one for you but what sort of tools do you use and what can parents use to well, help self-regulation this is an interesting question because in my experience, so I'm a music therapist, um, from the time I was 11 until the time my daughter was born, which my first daughter, which was 31, so for 20 years there, I was playing music every day for hours. And I really believe that my experience of music was what was keeping me regulated through my teens and 20s. Um, I know that because I'm a neurologic music therapist, I know that our motor cortex, which is the part of the brain that controls all our conscious movements. So if when you are physically hyperactive, um, that, that is the motor cortex that is on overdrive and it's going fast and it's telling your body to move fast and you don't want to sit still and you want to swing on the chair and all of this. And I was a bit like that, although instead of coming out, instead of presenting as me running around and not sitting still and 
um, you know, swinging from the chandeliers. It came out as nonstop talking and giggling and not being able to focus on a single thought and all of those kinds of things. Um, and part of that was because I was experiencing sensory, it was definitely exacerbated by experiencing sensory overload. And I know that the brain, the motor cortex entrains to rhythm. So when I am playing music, I was playing in the school band, I was playing in jazz bands, I was in an orchestra, I was in all these kinds of bands and music is so rhythmic and it has a driving pulse and just experiencing this for hours every day was keeping me so well regulated. I was also an aerobics instructor. So I was moving to music as sometimes I was, I was doing four aerobics classes a day because it felt like I could function. And at this time I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know I was autistic. I didn't know I had sensory difficulties. I didn't know that I was regulating and, and stimming. I was I was giving myself um, sensory stimulation as a way of staying organized and regulated. So I have very first hand experience in how powerful uh, moving your body, using rhythm, um, listening to music um, can be at keeping us regulated, especially rhythmic music. I talk a lot about the difference between melody and rhythm and, and how the brain responds to it. And it's, it's quite complicated, but I always just put it in a tiny nutshell. Um, I usually think of melody as going hand in hand with emotional expression and rhythm as going hand in hand with physical movement because melody it stimulates the limbic system, which um, activates our emotions and our long-term memories. And so when we hear beautiful melodic kind of music, it makes us feel things. But if you listen to or if you play drums or if you do body percussion or hip-hop or anything with a driving rhythm and a driving beat, that can really, really, really help regulate your brain and body. So, you know, honestly, just listening to music that is consistent and rep repetitious is so, so, so good for regulating. I also stim a lot um, and I've always just done it secretly. <laughs> so weird that I didn't realise that I was doing anything different to anyone else when I was growing up. It's only now in hindsight that I know what stimming is. Um, and I usually um, just do things with my hands. I guess it's called flapping. And just in case you're wondering, autistic people are very usually very fine with the word flapping, so you can call it flapping. No one gets offended. Um, and I move my fingers up and down and I just do sort of um, rhythmic type movements with my arms and hands. Um, and that really, really, really helps me be able to regulate. And, and this is not... Stimming is generally something that you will find if a child is going to benefit from stimming, they're probably already doing it or they'll, they'll come to it naturally. It'll just be something that they start doing because their body tells them to do it. It's not something that you need to put into a sensory plan or anything generally. Mm, that's interesting that you brought up the stimming because, as you know, um, a lot of parents and even professionals will discourage stimming um, because it looks unusual or odd or they might get teased. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's absolutely cases for, um, you know, okay, so a lot of stimming can be dangerous, especially if, if it involves um, self-harm, um, you know, hitting your head on the wall, um, hurting yourself. Um, and in that case, I absolutely believe that those stims need to be shaped or adapted. Uh, you know, essentially those stims do need to be stopped, but I don't like to come at it from a place of we need to stop the stim because when you think of we need to stop the stim, you're focusing on the behaviour. And like I always say, the behaviour is never the problem. The punching, the headbutting the wall, um, the headbutting your sibling, the her, cut, scratching your skin off on your wrists, that that behaviour isn't the problem. So when you focus on just trying to stop the stim, you're not actually going to make a real difference. You're just going to make it potentially harder for them because that stim is happening for a reason. And I, I don't hurt myself, but I do flick my wrists and my fingers a lot and I, I need it. It's the only way I can 
remember, you know, I'm doing it now. It's the way I remember the question you asked me and it's the way I can focus. Um, I definitely think for a lot of children we can very, very easily in some cases and effectively adapt stimming behaviours. I did this in my own family with my daughter when she was four. She was screaming a lot and it was a um, constant, very high-pitched, shrill scream and we knew she was doing it to um, block out all the noises in the environment, especially from the baby that we had at that time. And um, we couldn't cope with that, especially me being auditory <laughs> defensive. <laughs> so we taught, we spent a long time, probably a year, teaching her how to whistle and we got all excited about whistling and we shaped and we adapted that behaviour so that it becomes something that it was a little bit more uh, appropriate for all of us to live with but I never ever ever would stop a stim because it looks different because it seems weird uh, because other people don't know how to cope with it I actually think stimming um you know within reason um the sorts of common stimming behaviors that we see like hands flicking and fidgeting and um tapping feet, um, I actually think that they're just so healthy and I think embracing them and encouraging conversation around them and normalising that is going to be a much more effective way of validating children's needs and helping them function in the world um, rather than stopping them. Mm, absolutely. And we all stim. If parents, you yeah. know, if we all stop to have a think, you know, at the moment I've got this pen and I'm constantly opening it and closing it and I'm always fiddling with my fingers. I know if I'm in a boring lecture theatre or, you know, at a workplace meeting or something, I'm constantly fiddling. Um, and so we all do it. I suppose it is just working out what works for your child and your family environment yeah. and everything like that. And, and I do believe there's a lot of people who stim uh, like, so my most common stim is that I clench my glutes and my um, calves and I... I um, flex my toes up and down in my shoes. So most of my stims, I've been doing that all of my life and pinching my, my thumbs, in, putting my thumbs inside my fist and pinching it. So they are stims that you would never, ever have noticed. Again, I was always very much just um, poker face. None of the behaviours came out. No one, no, no one ever saw them because I was very, very, I was masking and I was very, very, uh, aware of what other people were doing and no, no one else was flicking their wrists around. So I didn't either. Um, and I think, um, when we start exploring stimming more, we will, we will find that there are so many, especially adults, um, who are stimming just by clenching muscles and stuff like that. It's very, very common. Hmm. All righty. Let's head to kids who under respond to sensory information. Uh, firstly, I'd like to know if you under-respond to anything and what it can look like. I don't under-respond to anything. Now, here is where it gets technical, and I, get, I do get confused by this, Rhiannon, so bear with me. I, I do seek sensory input, but I don't believe it's because I need more of it. I do believe it's because... I'm trying to either block out. So I will often seek auditory information. I will seek noise as a way of blocking out all of the thousand little tiny noises all around me in the environment. And often that is just by speaking because I've found that when I talk a lot and I've got a loud voice and, you know, in your own head your voice sounds loud, so if I'm constantly talking... Um, I've got this really strong noise auditory input happening and it's blocking out a lot of the noise around me. Um, and I definitely seek proprioceptive input, um, weighted blankets, weighted cushions, um, stuff like that. I um, don't personally seek, but I, once again, I'm big on um, supporting our children's needs rather than trying to change their needs or, or um, change the behaviour. So for children who seek, 
um, and who are always just needing to, to play with things and to have therapy and then to be touching something fluffy and then stroking the ch- other kids in the classroom's hair and doing all these other things. I'm absolutely all about um, supporting what they need to be able to function because the brain is telling them to do that for a reason. Um, the only the only reason I believe that anyone would frown upon people who stim or people who, you know, are, are seeking and needing fidget tools in the classroom is because we're just sort of coming out of an era when it was it was not really good to be different. I mean, I remember going through school in the eighties and nineties that if people were presenting as non-typical, I don't know how to say it, you know, um, in the PC words, but it was, it was a bit like, Ooh, that person's autistic or something like that. It wasn't talked about. Um, and there was discrimination happening as well. And I certainly have, I mean, I think everyone's been exposed to hearing discriminatory thoughts, um, especially when it's set 20 years ago, back when we didn't have this idea of neurodiversity and, and acceptance. So I think the people who are really confused about whether they should let their children seek, let them stim, especially in public, are probably fearful because of their conditioning from the past when it was frowned upon to rock in the classroom or frowned upon to be flapping their hands. Um, and I really think that when we, when we start to see a shift in cultural expectations that this issue about whether children should or should not be allowed to stim will be completely different because supporting children's needs is what everyone wants to do. Mm. Um, and I definitely think that it's going to be easier for us to allow our children to stim. And from a lived experience, I can say that if anyone had tried to, if anyone tried to tell me not to, f- to flick my wrists or to stop clenching my glutes, I don't know if anyone can ever see that from the outside, but um, I couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it without some serious straight jacket type intervention. And that would um, absolutely emotionally annihilate me. So it's not just something that someone's choosing to do. It's something that keeps you functioning. And when you feel like you're going to implode and you're full of rage and something as simple as, as flicking your hands or rocking back and forth can make that feeling go away. It's like the healthiest medicine there is. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's about feeding the need, you know, kids are seeking this to help their brain stay organized. And like you said, if you don't um, satisfy that need, then you're not going to be able to think straight and you're not going to be able to learn to your full potential. You're not going to be able to do, um, you know, every everyday basic tasks. You know, yeah. for some kids, they won't be able to get ready in the morning. They won't be able to do whatever it is. And so in terms of sensory seeking, um, we do need to feed the needs. So instead of saying, you know, wait until you finished your homework and then you can go jump on the trampoline or then you can go, run around and be crazy and and do all that sort of stuff. We need to say, okay, first we need to give them this and feed the need, give the brain and the body what it needs instead of just stopping that hyperactivity and that that behaviour that we're seeing. We actually need to give it to them first and then understand that then they're going to be more ready for learning. Yeah, and that even having the breaks, like the trampoline breaks throughout the homework can be, you know, it can prime the brain to be able to finish the homework. And I do this in my own life now as an adult, Rhiannon. I, I work best when I do hour on, hour off because I work in front of a screen now and I do have experience visual overload. Um, if I try to work even for, for, say, three hours without coming away from the computer, it affects me for days to come. So I, will, I have a rule. Um, it's one hour inside, one hour outside. So I'll do one hour inside on the computer and then I'll do one hour. It might, the hour outside might be over in the music room where, where I'm just playing my guitar or something, or it might be in the garden. Um, but I absolutely function best when I work like that. And I, I also want to say that 
don't you you don't also need to be fearful for your child's future because you know I um would struggle probably to be in a job or I have struggled to be in a job in the past where you're in at a desk full time um but the the way that we work is shifting and there is so much capacity and acceptability for people to work in so many different environments and in so many different ways and works places are so flexible to children's needs. So if your young person is experiencing difficulty focusing or staying at a desk, it doesn't mean that they won't be able to have a productive or fulfilling career. Uh, it works very well for me um, working from home, being able to move from the, from the desk and the computer outside to get my, you know, have my sensory breaks and then come back to it. And I'm very productive and successful and, you know, we, we can, we can have really productive lives in that Mm, way. Absolutely. Mm. Um, I just want to quickly touch on brain care. I know we've spoken a lot about it just throughout the interview, but if you could tell us what brain care is all about, um, And just give the listeners some ideas and some tips of what they can be doing from a lifestyle perspective at home as well. Yep. So brain care is literally caring for the brain. Um, It's not something that we, we think about a lot, which is the reason why I talk about brain care, because when you really say it like that, brain care, like any other kind of care, it just, it brings your attention back to the fact that our brains need to be cared for. And especially because we are living in such a hectic, fast-paced, rushed lifestyle that's difficult even for adults to deal with, let alone four-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 14-year-olds. Um, it, we really do need to understand what our brain likes, what helps it, what, what, how we can care for it to help, to support it to, to function at its best. Um, and some of the things that do that, I mean, sensory, I do think the sensory overload, I mean, apart from if you or your child specifically is under responsive to sensory information and they have, then they'll have their own specific set of needs that an occupational therapist will help you with. But in general, I think most people are experiencing a sense of sensory overload for the reasons we've talked about before, just because there is so much, our, our environment is so sensory dense. Um, so I often sort of, um, talk about having a bit of a sensory cull in spaces that you have control over. So, um, in, in your home, I guess is the main, the main place, but maybe in the car, if your car's anything like mine and just fills up with stuff, but I look around and, um, I go, okay, what, what in this space is causing auditory input? And do I need to reduce that or cull some of the noises? Um, What in this room is creating visual overload and how can I reduce that? Um, So I sort of go through each of the sensory systems. Smell is a big one. Um, And how can I alter the smell in here to suit my needs better? So I think anything that you're doing Uh, in terms of sensory management is absolutely caring for your brain because the brain just does not have the capacity to integrate all of the sensory information that we have in our modern homes and modern schools. So, and I'm not talking about just, you know, culling um, or getting rid of anything that sparks, doesn't spark joy. I'm really talking about thinking about it in terms of each sense and, and having a bit of a cull that way. Um, I'm definitely a big fan of music and music is one of the best ways we can care for our brain. When we experience music, more of our brain becomes active simultaneously than when we experience any other thing that's been researched. So experiencing music could be uh, listening to it, making it, or even thinking about it. So if you were just singing that song in your head, you are experiencing music and the same parts of the brain will activate as if you were singing it out loud. Um, and what we want is our brain to be active. Uh, an active brain doesn't, it can be active, but not overloaded. So an active brain means all the neural pathways are, are on. They are talking to each other. Both hemispheres are going. Uh, the prefrontal cortex is alive and well, and everything in there is, 
you have the best capacity for processing and thinking and making decisions and staying clear. So experiencing music and, you know, there's no great enormous um, trick to how to experience music. Just listen to the music that you like and the music that makes you feel good. And, you know, if you listen to something and it triggers something you don't like or a memory, it doesn't make you feel good or you have an adverse reaction to it, just don't listen to it. Try something else. So it can be really basic the way you use music strategically. Just go with your gut. Hmm. Um, definitely controlled breathing, just breathing, just being aware of your breathing and that when you breathe in and hold it in there, when you hold air in your lungs, the oxygen has more of an opportunity to diffuse into the bloodstream and oxygenated blood travels to your brain. And when you have oxygenated blood circulating around your brain, it is um, enhancing every aspect of your brain and your body and everything, you know, oxygen's great for everything. Um, so simple things really brain brains aren't complicated. Um, they don't like, they really like the simple things in life, you know, <laughs> time outside connected with connected with the environment, oxygen, um, not too much clutter. They like breaks, brains like breaks. So have some time out, put your headphones on, noise-cancelling headphones I think are great. Um, and doing simple tasks that aren't complex. So I like to garden and, and you can call this mindfulness. There's a lot of different ways of achieving a sense of mindfulness, but just being focused on one simple task rather than having all these different things or be, be engaging constantly in a complex task, um, that's so simple tasks, great for brain care, um, sleep. We could go on for hours to the basic things. The basic things that we know make us feel good are generally good for brain care. Maybe not so much the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. And I have just written them out so we can do a bit of a recap. So it was sleep and I totally 110, everything that you're saying is resonating with me. So sleep, mindfulness, movement which you said earlier, music, nature, breathing, which is amazing because we also know that has obviously the physiological effect on the body where um, it slows down the heart rate. So particularly for kids who are stressed or anxious, if you can try and encourage a way to get them to do deep breathing exercises, it's going to slow down the heart rate. It calms the nervous system. Um, so I love that and breaks, more breaks in the yeah. day. Like our kids are bombarded with, you know, even school hours are longer. There's not enough playtime. Recess has been shortened. It's just um, we're sitting inside for too long. We're living sedentary lifestyles. You know, it is going back to basics. It's going back to how we used to live and trying to reconnect with that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I, I guess also I could add there that singing and and reading out loud, reading books out loud is a great way of doing controlled breathing without having to, because breathing exercises can be difficult and especially if your child has difficulty focusing. Um, but just reading out loud as I read out loud um, to my son who I just put to bed, I was reading the Lorax. And when you read a phrase or a sentence, um, it it's like it's like an outbreath, and you can't be anxious when you're reading because otherwise, I, I was saying those trees, those trees, those truffler trees, that is a big long controlled outbreath. That phrase there, that one phrase requires a big long outbreath, and then I breathe in and do the next phrase. But if I was anxious and just doing short breaths, I would have been saying something like those trees those trees <laughs> so reading out loud is a really great way to regulate your breathing and also singing twinkle twinkle little star that's an out breath um so doing singing or reading out loud and then if you need to work on it if you need to really really um calm down even further just slowing the singing down and slowing the reading voice down they are some of the most wonderful non-invasive ways of doing controlled breathing without having to actually do breathing exercises. Mm, I love that. Mm. 
Alrighty, let's head to, was it, we'll head to the five rapid fire questions. Was there anything else you wanted to mention before we head to that? I think we've pretty much covered it all. I think we've, <laughs> we're doing well, yeah, we're good. <laughs> Alrighty, number one, what is one habit that parents can implement today? Start observing your children more strategically, I'd say, in terms of their sensory needs. Like move past the idea that it's that their behaviours are the problem and start observing how they're reacting to specific sensory stuff, how they're responding to too much noise, how they're responding to tactile clothes. Um, so observing, yep. Awesome. Number two, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? You know, that question that you asked me today, no one's ever asked me and I'm so pleased when you ask what it actually felt like, what the feeling inside was like. Because it, when you talk about um, sensory processing disorder, it, can be, it, it gets quite easy to just stay in the facts like what we've talked about for most of the talk. But when you really can explain the depth of the feeling and how every, to your very essence and core, like sometimes I really truly feel like I'm going to die and I know that's not realistic but it is so deep, the feeling I've never experienced anything harder, more challenging than coping with sensory overload. So, yeah, I'm really pleased that you asked me that. Thank you. Mm, that's, so, that's such important information for parents to hear as well. Um, number three, what book would you recommend that all parents read? Oh, this is good. I was trying to think of one. You know what? <laughs> I'm going to preempt because I don't think she's written a book yet, but <laughs> there's a lady called Christy Forbes, who's a neurodiversity consultant and everything she says is absolutely blows my mind the way she can articulate supporting children's needs. And so I'm going to say, for the public record, I want her to write a book. <laughs> oh, and I, I think that's going to that. be the book, even though it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> yeah, oh, she is incredible. I absolutely love her. It just absolutely same thing. She's very articulate and she's just spot on with everything that she says. Yeah. I do feel it's hard. It's hard to... to to pinpoint a book that's already been written because what we learn about sensory processing disorder changes so quickly that anything that's already been written doesn't quite nail it for me. Um, so in that way, a book, because it's, it's a long process of creating, it's never completely up to date. But I do, I would say Asperger experts who are, are a couple of guys who live in the States and I'm, they're coming to Australia next week. Um, they have a few books and they talk about the sensory funnel and their explanation of the sensory environment uh, and the focus on the sensory environment as part of their autism framework um, is spot on and their information on sensory processing is fabulous. So let's also say anything by Asperger experts. Excellent. Okay, great. Um, number four, what is your top unfinished bucket list item? Um, okay. <laughs> I've got one. It's, it's quite, um, off the cuff. Um, it's been on my bucket list. Do you really want to know this? It's kind of embarrassing. Yeah, we do. All, you're holding us in suspense here. Okay. <laughs> it's not related to anything we're talking about tonight. I've always wanted to be one of those singers who, who lies on top of a piano in fishnets and sings jazz music, um, like cabaret style. And it's, it's, I've wanted to do it my entire life. I have a bit of an alter ego that is, um, yeah, a sultry jazz singer atop a piano with, with a corset and fishnets. So um, it's definitely on my bucket list. I feel like I'm getting a bit old. I'm definitely a bit too grey. I definitely don't have the same allure that I would have if I'd done this 15 years ago. But it's still on my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we can make it happen. Like, And if it does happen, you've got to invite us so we know. <laughs> oh, my God, I think I might have to Facebook live it. Like, or something. I was <laughs> 
Oh, that would be fantastic. All right, yeah, definitely. Are you going to have some practices at home before you pull that one out? Yeah, I need a piano. (laughs) We need to make this happen. And some fishnets if you don't already have them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not something I currently have. In the top drawer. No, ah, <laughs> I definitely do need to work on this one. <laughs> All right. Well, that's probably one of my favourite bucket list items <laughs> that anyone's had on the show so far. Um, last but not least, number five, if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents, what would it be? Uh, okay. So even though I said uh, managing the depth feeling that comes with with sensory processing disorder is the most challenging thing that I've ever had to do, which it is, that does not mean that you can't have a amazing, wonderful, fulfilling, rich, healthy life. In fact, I if I hadn't experienced this, I would nowhere near have experienced the depth of life and learning and strength and self-awareness that I have. Um, And although I would never choose to have sensory processing disorder, um, it has really enriched my life in ways that, you know, resilience and self-awareness and it's not a, it's, it's nothing to be feared and your child can absolutely have a wonderful, fulfilling, amazing life. So, yeah, that. Awesome. Fantastic. How can people find out more about you and your work, Ali? Well, uh, my website is alisondavies.com.au. So you can find me there. Uh, Alison has two L's. Um, but you'll find me on Facebook or Instagram at Alice, uh, Instagram, alisondavies.com.au. And Facebook, my Facebook page is called Alison Davies Brain Care Specialist. Um, and you can find me at any of those places. Basically just type Alison Davies into any social media outlet and you'll find me there. Um, and, yeah, I, I have a bunch of online resources and my e-course and I do a lot of guest speaking around Australia. And um, so there's lots, of, there's lots of information there that people can seek. Mm, fantastic. And you're always... Um, doing a lot of Instagram stories. So it's really interesting to see what happens behind the scenes. I always think it's really interesting to see what's going on in your life and what you're talking about because, you know, for parents it can be really relevant to them at that point. And I'm learning a lot from you. You are just incredible. Um, Yeah, you're amazing. So definitely head on over, check out the different sites. Um, and if you get a chance to check out the Brains Equal Behaviours course, um, there's heaps of content on there that Alison's sharing. So Yeah, and um, we do we spend two weeks talking about the sensory stuff. So we do dig in. Mm, fantastic. Awesome. Okay, that is it. Thank you so much, Alison, for shedding light on all the sensory stuff and the lived experience. Um, oh, it's been it's a amazing. pleasure. Thank awesome. you so much. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all. So if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search home base hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. The 2019 Wellness Summit is almost here. I love being at these events. They're always such a great, positive environment. It's been really great to um, listen to like-minded people and to um, meet a few people, actually. I've been to every summit 
and I've been to everyone and I'll always keep coming. It's always inspiring. It's been a real eye-opener. We're actually signed up to go to the breakthrough now. It's very motivating. I think it's great to listen to people who are inspired. And there's always something to learn and something to take away. I think uh, for myself and giving myself that um, opportunity to, to learn. There's so much going on in life and everything that you can get distracted and forget the things that you should be doing. And this always reminds you to get back on track and, and um, to focus on the things that are important, a holistic health. Just do it, yeah. Just yeah, suck it up and do it. It's, uh, it could be life-changing, yeah. I would say it's awesome and it's the start of changing your life. Come along, see what it's about, and enjoy it. It's an amazing event with like-minded, positive people, and you can't help but um, walk away feeling great. Positive Mentor presents the 2019 Wellness Summit, August 17 and 18 in Melbourne. Can you afford to miss out? Tickets at thewellnesssummit.com. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.